Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're looking at 2005's Wimbledon, where Roger picked up his fifth Grand Slam title. Yes, if you're doing the math, there were two Grand Slams in between 2004's U.S. Open and 2005's Wimbledon, which means Roger did not come out on top of those. We'll look at those a little bit because new cast members and usual suspects are finally coming into the fold of this story. Um, Let's quickly look back at post-U.S. Open 2004. Um, Roger finishes the year winning the last two tournaments he played, blanking Roddick in one set of the final in Bangkok and only losing a set to Carlos Moya in the Masters Cup, en route to another convincing win against Hewitt. Prior to the Australian Open, Brian, he breezed through Doha and took that trophy. The theme of this episode, to anchor in your word that you you sent me off mic, was ho-hum. A lot of this is ho-hum, but I'm going to push back at you on some of that in a moment here. Quick aside, though. On television camera angles for Grand Slams versus other tournaments. I rattled off a bunch of tournaments at you just a minute ago, and there are some other ones that I'm going to mention to you in a moment as well. The Grand Slam optics are much more set back, whereas some of the others are lower to the court. Um, I've never gone back and looked at so many matches in my life before, by the way. I'm mostly just a Grand Slam guy. I've gone back and watched a bunch of this stuff on YouTube, and the optics are flatter, almost. You feel like you're right on the court. What's the sweet science there? Well, a lot of it has to do with the size of the stadium. So let's use the U.S. Open, for example. Arthur Ashe Stadium, biggest tennis stadium in the world. It's almost like if you're building an NFL stadium here in the U.S., you're going to have TV in mind. And Arthur Ashe Stadium, in terms of where the cameras can go, is almost built with TV in mind, where there's a TV booth right overlooking the court, perfect spot. But then if you go out to some... 250, some 500-level tournament where it's maybe a temporary setting, it's just a little bit different, your choices on where to put the camera are going to be a lot more limited. So these grand slams with a little bit more of an existing infrastructure, you can get the more optimal TV looks and the positionings for the camera. Yeah, I kind of like the feel of like being right in it. It makes the court look smaller even, kind of like, and you're like wondering like, do they have to adjust the power of their shot? Like, are the, is the court size the same across the board? Well, the size of the lines, yes. Like, that, yes. that court's the same. But baseline to of, baseline. Yeah, that's all the same. Okay, okay. It looks smaller. Yeah, but that's all. The, I mean, it's the same there. Okay. But wh- where it's interesting, and we could talk about this down the road, the real estate around the court gets different. So if you go on to some side court at a tournament where it's like something you see at your local park, there's far less room 
off to the sides, behind the baselines. It's a tighter, more confined surface. And you go to mm. some of these main stadium courts, uh, thinking of the U.S. Open again here with Ash Stadium, and you see Nadal or Dominic team lining up 12 feet behind the baseline. You can't really do that on one of those outer courts because you're going to be up against the fence. But there's a lot more real estate on these big stadium courts. So that does come into play at times. But the court dimensions themselves, where you've got to put the ball in, those are all the same. Those are universal. 2005 Australian Open. I want to start here in particular because of a five-setter with Marat Safin in the semifinal. Marat Safin has anchored to our story since the beginning. So I, I just, uh, this match was incredible. And I think it's been written as one of the greatest Grand Slam matches of all time. Um, I want to get your thought on that. But I want to set it up first. He walked through to the quarterfinals. Um, actually, Baghdad stretched him to a third set tie break in the fourth round. But before that, the match was like hitting practice. And this, again, going back to your ho-hum theme here. Um, in the quarterfinal, he faced Agassi again and beat him in straight sets. In the semis, he played this epic five-setter against Marat Safin. The fifth set went to 9-7. It was Safin's birthday, by the way. I have a little play-by-play here to set up, and then I want to show you a video clip, and then I want to get your response. We're going to mess around with some video because we have this technology at our disposal, and I think it'll make it things a little bit more fun or reactive, if you will. Sure. Federer won the first set. Safin won the second. And I'm going to go to 4-4 in the third. Federer's serving. He saves two break points, one with a backhand volley at the net, the next with a forehand winner. And then Federer gets to add off a 360 volley from the baseline. A 360 volley from the baseline makes everything look so easy against the greatest competition on the planet. Kind of like a Harlem Globetrotter out there. In a Grand Slam semifinal, no less. Safin breaks his racket, which is a theme in 2005 in particular. In his career. In In his career. (laughs) In his career is a theme. But in 2005 in particular, there's something interesting that happened, and I'll connect the dots down the line here. Uh, Fashion aside, though, Brian, uh, I just made a basketball reference inadvertently, but Safin's gold chains, the early MJ vibes, what was the tactical strategy with those, the amount of ice or gold on his neck? I don't think there's tactical strategy. I think it's Amarat Safin. I'm here. I'm good looking. The women love me and I'm going to stunt essentially. And that's exactly what Marat Safin did. Um, yeah, he's his own guy. We talked about that a, a couple of episodes ago, that that's what he was so beloved for. I mean, he's now a lawmaker. He's in the Duma in Russia. He is a unique force of personality and wearing chains on the court as a, in a pre-Curios era is a good example of that. Oh, nice that you incorporated Kyrgios into the mix. Federer takes the third set, 7-5 off a Safin long forehand. Fourth set goes to a tiebreak. Federer gets it to 4-1, and all this is for a reason, I promise. Federer gets it to 4-1 off a sick backhand drop shot, then gets it to 5-2 on his next two serves. Safin is, to quote the broadcast, back in town. Gets it to 5-4. Then Federer gets a match point. 6-5 on his serve. He attacks the net 
which is should be game set match. When Federer attacks the net off his first serve, it's usually over. I looked at the statistic on Tennis Abstract. It is well into the 70s. If he attacks the first serve, it's done, right? Safin doesn't flinch. Federer has to chase one ball and then hits it between his legs into the net. Right up there, all-time match point exchange. Does a better one come to mind for you? A more audacious one? Yeah, Djokovic against Federer in the U.S. Open with some of those returns where he just goes for it. But that's... You talking about the ones where he's slapping it? Yeah, I mean, those are career-defining. But Safin's is right up there. Um, And just where the only play Federer has when he's up at match point to get to an Australian Open final is to try this desperation tweener that almost worked, almost cleared the net. Um, That's remarkable in and of itself. But that bit of just gutsy, that gutsy show from Safin there is why that's, as you say, it's rightfully considered this is one of the best Grand Slam matches, a high-stakes match at a big point in the tournament ever because of what we saw from these two. And let's not forget something else here. Federer was not making excuses. He was a little bit hobbled throughout this match. He was dealing with he had blisters on his feet, so those were slowing him down. But then as the match went on, his hand or his finger, he started to have some issues with blistering there. Hot night in Australia. It's the middle of summer. And everything, well, I'll let you finish in terms of what happened in the match. Well, to your point, he took multiple medical timeouts in the fifth set. Um, there was obviously a little bit of two-sidedness there as far as the presentation of that. Some people thought it was gamesmanship on his part and other people saw it as him actually really being injured. You can decide for yourself what camp you want to be in there. But Safin goes up 5-3, meaning Federer's clearly hurt, right? He gets to serve for the match. Safin does, okay? He gets a match point. Federer gets it back to deuce. And then he gets a second match point. Federer saves it again. This again goes back to the epicness of it. Both of them had these high stakes, high moment, high intensity performances. And that's why this is all the more devastating, which I'll get to at the end here. Federer gets a break point and then he wins that game 4-5. Finally, he gets it to 6-6, serving on double match point for Safin. He saves the first one again. The tension of this match, you watch it. I watched it, and I have a clip that I'm going to show you. The tension of this match, Brian, is just insane. I got emotional. I had a funny exchange with my wife afterwards. Uh, He saves the second match point, and then back to Deuce. Again on his serve, Federer gets it to 7-7. Now at 8-7, Federer changes his shirt, okay? And he's wearing color. All through the U.S. Open, Brian. But now... Australia. All through Australia, thank you. Now he puts on white. Was that for good luck, maybe? Was that a Wimbledon? That's a thought. My other thought is he was probably out of uh, fresh shirts. And that that was... Nike gave him only so many for that night. And probably at, you know, 8-7 in the fifth set, you've probably gone through five or six by that point. So it's whatever was left in the locker, that might be more likely. I think the mythology of like, well, Safin's got all these talismans on his neck. I'm going to go Wimbledon on this guy and I'm going to bring this home. I think that's a beautiful statement if that's what, what he was thinking. But I'm, you're probably right. It's a, it was a logistical thing more than anything else. 
I am looking forward, you say go Wimbledon too, as we go down the road here. Uh, 2005 is a little bit too early, but once we get into the the latter part of this decade, some of the frankly ridiculous things that he would wear on the court at Wimbledon with the the blazer and the build a butcher jacket and the cardigan and we'll we'll allot some time to those down the road. But yeah, going Wimbledon is a good way to describe it. The shoulder pads in particular uh, yeah. is the one thing I, I had a little bit of an issue with. Yeah. It looked like a Beatles album, Sergeant Pepper's <laughs> yeah. over here. Saffin wins on Federer's serve, knocking him to the ground with a backhand down the line. Now, Brian, I got up after watching this and went to the kitchen. This was last night. Uh, not, not years Yeah, that was my quiet. Ago. Was this 50, a good memory of uh, middle of the night 15 years ago? Right. Well, what happened then apparently echoed 15 years later. Nothing changed. I went to the kitchen. My wife noticed a long face, asked me what's wrong. And I said, like, full stop, I said, I have a problem. I get emotional when Federer loses, even when I know he's going to lose. <laughs> I knew it was coming, but I got emotional and I videoed it for you. She agreed, by the way, that I have a big problem. And she told me to take out the trash right afterward. That, that that's I'm glad that she only told you that, you know, in the midst of global turmoil right now, as we sit here, <laughs> there's no tennis, no sports, and you're crying over a 15-year-old match. It's impressive patience by your wife. Definitely. But the point of this exercise, okay, going through all that, is his wins are that much sweeter after going through slog losses like this. And to your point about it being ho-hum, I feel like this warrants it a little bit, if that makes any sense. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but the matches that he breezed through are all the more special, is my argument, if you will, because of what happened in this Safin match. Um, yeah, but I also think there's a lot of, there's a lot of credit to go around here. Um, you've got to, first of all, give tremendous credit to Marat Safin, who went on to win the tournament. Yes. Um, because we always talk, and we'll probably talk about this again when we look at the Wimbledon final here in 05. You know, these guys with great serves, why couldn't they beat Federer? And it's he's so good at returning. He's able to blunt their weapons. We talk about that a lot with Andy Roddick. We talked about it a few years ago with Mark Filippousis. Safin is in that class as a big hitter, a big server, but he was almost perfect in this semifinal. As good as Federer was at his return this night, Safin was just that little bit better. He was able to use it as a weapon that we've seen so many players had it taken away from them by Federer. So Safin played pretty much a, a perfect match physically, but then also mentally because that's been, that was the issue for Safin at times where a little bit of adversity, he'd go away. But you know, you're, he's down a match point, manages to save it. He has so many different opportunities to close it out over the course of that fifth set, and it eventually takes him all the way up to 9-7 in those pre-fifth set tie break days. So tremendous tip of the cap there. Then even for Federer to come out on the short end of this match, by no means did he play poorly. Yeah, you're going to rue that missed match point you had, but to play as well as he did and seeing what a superhuman effort it took from Safin, if Federer's pretty complimentary afterwards really all you can do is tip your cap um and this is sport at the highest level well said i'm gonna share the clip with you brian i'd like to get your immediate reaction to it you're gonna see me in the corner okay my live reaction 15 years later still getting emotional watching him fall to the ground and then i want to ask a question after okay okay so let me do my screen share here i think we got this figured out uh you still with me i'm with you 
Okay. And here we go. That's enough. Federer finishes the match on his knees. Marat Safin gets a belated birthday present. <laughs> I think I'm actually crying. In his third Australian <laughs> Open final. Uh, okay. So you saw that. Lot, lot to take in there. Yeah. Um, what's your immediate reaction to that? And Safin was so good. Just uh, that's just watching him just pummel a ball. Um, and that's, that's what we're talking about, though. The level in this match, and you're able to produce that at 9-7 in the fifth set to get it over the line when you've been on court for however many hours at that point. There's nothing left to be able to dig deep and to claw that out. That's remarkable. And that's what we talk about, the gladiatorial aspect of this sport. And just to, to suck it up that little bit, to find it right there, uh, is incredible. Final question. Okay, again, revisionist history corner over here, if you will. If he gets past Safin, again, he had match point in his pocket on his serve. Is that Australian Open his, given his history with Hewitt? More than likely, um, because I think the biggest advantage that you have for Hewitt here is playing. This is the only time he made the Australian Open final. Um, so, you know, but that gets maybe blunted by the fact that, oh, right, he's going up against Federer. But then on the other hand, you think, okay, how much did that take out of the tank? He wasn't uh, in top fitness going into that because of the blisters. Was he going to be able to recover to win a final against a surely would have been fired up Leighton Hewitt, who thinks, I'm on, I've got this guy on my turf. I've beaten him in Australia before in Davis Cup. Sure, he's beaten me in the majors lately, but maybe this is my shot. He just took a good shot from Safin. Let's say he gets through that. I, I think more likely than not, Federer wins that final, but I wouldn't. it's not a sure thing by any means. Uh, home court advantage. If you're Hewitt, are you happy to play against Safin, or would you have rather played Roger? Uh, probably Safin, because you're thinking the same thing, that, okay, this guy just its one of the biggest wins of his life. Yeah, sure, he's, he's won majors before, but beating Federer in that kind of style, um, it's tough to come back from that and recharge, but Safin, of course, did. So I, I think on the surface of your Hewitt, you probably are feeling better about that matchup going in. Two other things about this final, about this Australian Open, and I promise we're talking about Wimbledon here, but this, is, this loss is important because coming off the 2004 Federer had, where he wins the three majors, you're realistically thinking, and I think it's a fair thought, that, hey, this guy could win all four majors this year. We're still waiting on him to win the French Open, but let's see. Can he become the first guy since Rod Laver to win the calendar year Grand Slam? And he falls to the first hurdle. Now, I'd say falls to the first hurdle. It makes it sound like he choked, which he certainly didn't. He was outslugged in an all-time match by Marat Safin. But all of a sudden, one of the big goals for the year just goes poof before February 1st. That's interesting. The other thing that's interesting, this is right around the time where he starts working with a coach, Tony Roche, who is an Australian, one of the Australian greats. He worked with Leighton Hewitt down the road. So we are going to start to see the elements of the Tony Roche influence in the Federer game and what he brought. and. You think, this guy just had this career year in 2004 with no coach. Why is he bringing on a coach now? And I think trying to win that French Open is a big part of that and just looking for that little bit extra. So that coach insertion was because of Roland Garros, you suspect? 
Yeah, I think um, that style of play was was well suited to to Roland Garros. I mean, he he was a great coach on all ser- great player on all services. Tony Roche, and he's a successful coach on all services. But just get that extra set of eyes. Okay, I've been successful everywhere. I, I've not been successful here. Maybe somebody else who has some experience can come in and take a look and help me guide me onto the right track. There. Do you have any insights on how those deals play out? If Roger Federer wants you to be his coach, is it is it a phone call from Roger Federer to said coach? Uh, it's probably going to be from uh, an agent or somebody in the camp. Uh, it's not usually that direct. Um, that it's an interesting uh, dynamic how the, the coach relationships work out because it, these relationships are, are extremely transactional. Um, yeah, sometimes you see men coaching women. Uh, who might be a spouse or a significant other. And that that's maybe a little bit more rare, but a lot of, there's no, it's not a very, it's not a great job for stability and long-term job security with very few exceptions. A lot of changes. Um, the pay structure is interesting. You'll, the high level, you, each player is different with the coach, but they'll essentially have the coach on almost daily expenses, but you don't really get prize money until a certain point of a tournament because the expectation if you're a top player is I want the semifinals every week at least. So you don't start getting a piece of the prize money pot until later in a major, which is interesting to think about. And then, of course, as we sit here right now in now May 2020 where there's no tennis, coaches aren't getting paid usually. I mean, some of these players, maybe they are helping the coaches out, but if your player's not playing, you're not getting paid. So that can also be challenging if the player's injured. And this also applies to players as well. It's one of the reasons why tennis is so tough. If you're a, if you're a marquee coach and you're coaching a marquee player, just rough around the edges, what's your cut of the purse? I don't know the exact number. Um, you'll you'll be doing fine if you're a marquee if you're a marquee coach and your players going well. You're going to have a, a nice chunk of change, but you're not. You're probably not thinking, oh, this is going to last forever because right, it's not a full time job. No, it is a it is a full time job, but you can't oh, no job security. I guess exactly, I say. exactly, exactly. You're not uh, tenured, if you will. By no means. Well, Brian, Fed brushed off the loss. Clearly better than I did. It's an understatement. Winning at Rotterdam, where he played fellow countryman and friend Warinka, Stan Warinka, in the round of 16. Uh, I think that was their first match against each other. Warinka also played in this Wimbledon. Again, everything has a reason. We're getting to Wimbledon, we promise. And couldn't get out of the first round in Wimbledon, which we'll talk about. Um, But why did Stan take longer to peak? in your estimation. He's a fine wine now. Don't get me wrong. But what of his early career, Brian? He is the ultimate late bloomer. Um, a lot of it was, you know, we talked about this with Federer too. It, it's the the focus and between the ears, the mental toughness um, and dedicating yourself. And, and those things were maybe not where they needed to be earlier on in his career. Uh, he was able, you know, to, to get a little more fit he brought in Magnus Norman. That's the relationship that that really clicked for him. The coat we talk about the coaching relationship. Uh, Magnus Norman and Stan they they hit it off right away, and the results were almost immediate. But by the time those results really came in spades, this is 2010, 2011, He's 25 years old, which 10, 20 years earlier he would have been almost on the backside of his career. That's how tennis is. We talk about tennis getting tougher over the years, and one way is 
you see it just the physicality of the sport. It takes these these guys so much longer to really hit their prime. It's it's now mid twenties when these guys really start to to blossom and develop. Um, which was unheard of when you saw, you know, the young Sampras, the young Agassi, these guys at such a young age coming through, but it's taking longer now. So that's something for Stan. His forehand got better. His backhand's always been great. It's, you know, we talk about those one-hand backhands. You have the one Swiss Federer. It looks like, you know, something you'd hang in a museum. Uh, Vavrinka looks like something that would be, you know, used as a weapon of war because it, <laughs> it, there's so much power behind it. Um, so there, there are differences, but these two... It's interesting. I'm I'm kind of rambling here, but three years after this Wimbledon, Stan is a nice player, but he's not anywhere near what we thought of him as now a three-time major champion, three and zero in finals. Federer and Stan they won gold at the Olympics together, playing doubles for Switzerland in 2008. So he had the success, but putting it all together, that took a little bit more time. To go back to the fine wine analogy, I'm gonna just toss this out at you because I'm piggybacking on something you just said. Obviously, basketball analogies are, are going to be coming out fast and furious because of the Michael Jordan documentary. You talked about coaches and Stan locking in with a coach to get him to the next level. Who is the Phil Jackson of tennis coaching? Is there one? Here in the U.S., uh, you would see it, it gets tough because and this is one of the arguments you hear about basketball with Phil Jackson. Yeah, Phil Jackson's won all these titles, but, you know, his best player was uh, either Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal or Kobe Bryant. That's a pretty good uh, selection to work with. So you look at somebody like uh, a Paul Anacone, who did a lot of great work with Pete Sampras and then Federer uh, at the a few years on from now, he, he started working with Federer. So a ton of success there, but you're working with Roger Federer. So what did Paul, Paul Anacone certainly bringing new things into Federer's uh, toolbox because it, it worked out well, but who is the ultimate coach? I mean, Brad Gilbert's uh, watching him on ESPN. He's fun. He wrote a book called winning ugly and it's all about just grinding it out. Um, not playing, you know, maybe you're not playing the most aesthetically pleasing tennis, but it's about doing what it takes to win. Um, I'm going to give a cop at it. It's really tough to say, uh, last year, last year you saw, I'll give you another example. Last year you saw Dominic team. Um, he had the most success of his career. Here's Dominic team this going into 2020. I thought he was going to break through and win the French open. Who knows if we have a French open a few months from now, but it, it, it's certainly been uprooted. I thought he was going to win the French open. He got to the final last year. Uh, he won Indian Wells last year, beating Federer along the way. Uh, and that all clicked once he started working with Nicholas Masu, the former uh, Olympic gold medalist. And you think, oh, that's an interesting pairing, but it, it's worked for them. Andy Murray, his best results came when he teamed up with Yvonne Lendl. That's when he broke through and started winning majors. So it's more instead of, you know, there's that free, there's that Phil Jackson lurking out there. You're going to hire that guy. There's it's a lot of it's about finding the right fit with a, a certain player and the personalities involved and all that goes with it. Makes sense, 100%. Next, to your point about a ho-hum year, Roger won in Dubai, Indian Wells. Let me clarify for a second. I'm saying ho-hum in terms of it's almost boring because it's so dominant. This is one of the great years of all time. Yeah, So, but the New York Times had a headline, which I'm going to save for the end, because they are in 100% concert with what you're saying. And that's the fundamental question that I have for you at the end of this podcast that I want to talk about, but I want to save it. Okay. Okay. Roger won in Dubai, Indian Wells in Miami, evening things up, as you recall, with Rafa from a year earlier. Uh, the last two sets were both tie breaks, though, meaning Rafa Nadal is very much breathing down the neck here. Uh, he met Nadal again in the semifinal of Roland Garros. 
a four-setter. Nadal won the final, Brian. His first in his first ever French Open, which is kind of poetic. It's not even close how interconnected that player and tournament are to each other. A thought on Rafa's first Grand Slam. Um, looking back, you think, oh, wow, this kid's wearing these really weird pants and he's got sleeveless shirts. But uh, then you quickly notice the tennis that he was playing because at that time he was, I think, about to turn 19 and he goes out and absolutely schools the entire field. We've talked about Nadal a lot over these first couple of episodes in terms of building. Like He's the shark that's circling. You know he's about to arrive on the scene. And then this is where he certainly put his stamp on the arrival because, okay, he had had the big wins, Miami over Federer the year prior. But if you're maybe only following tennis around the Grand Slams, you probably don't know Nadal yet because he had that injury that cost him at times in 2004. Uh, but you see 2005, he beats Federer in the semifinals, then goes on to win the tournament against Puerta. Um, you're thinking, wow, this guy is really good. And then just watching him play and the leftiness, the just aggression, the way his ball comes off the ground. It, it was like nothing we've ever seen. And that is why he really, you know, Federer is more of an artist. We talk about that a lot, but nobody has turned the sport on its head on the men's side upon their arrival like Nadal did when he got there in 2005. It's almost like uh, comparing it to the, the women's game when Venus and Serena came and it looked like they're playing a different sport to everybody else. That's what Nadal at that point on clay looked like. Brian, we did it. 40 minutes in, 2005 Wimbledon. <laughs> Coming in, Roger won at Halla, beating Safin. Mini revenge for their epic Australian Open match. The seeds, Federer was one, followed by Roddick, Hewitt, Nadal, Safin, Henman, Kanyas, Davidenko, Groshan, and Ancic to round out the top 10. I'm going to go through Federer's path, Brian. If something jumps out, stop me. Round of 128, Paul-Henri Mathieu, who reached a peak rank of 12 in his career in 2008. That's about all I got to say on him. Played Federer seven times, lost them all. 0-10 against Nadal, too, since he's part of the story here. Round of 64, I have a video clip. Ivo Minar, Minar uh, reached a peak rank of 62. But Brian, this was probably the highlight shot of his career. Agree or disagree? I haven't seen the shot yet. I'm going to agree. Yeah, that's got to be just a tremendous feeling just to give Federer a taste of his own medicine because everything in that point, Federer hit about two shots in that exchange that would have been good enough to win the point. My but point then, exactly. Yeah, Minar hanging around enough to get himself in position. He had absolutely no business going for that winner when he did either to change directions like that. Um, that's the shot of somebody who really realizes they have nothing to lose and good on him for converting it essentially and cashing it in and giving himself a highlight. The note I gave myself here, it was very Novak Djokovic-esque early against Federer as well. Just going for everything because you have nothing to lose, which now that hindsight plays twenty twenty, it gives you a lot of respect for Novak, whereas before you thought he was young and kind of flippant about it. But when you have nothing to lose, you got to go. You got to go for broke. Agreed? Yeah, didn't Bob Dylan say that? 
You got nothing. You got nothing to lose. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. By the way, how are you liking this multimedia? This is this, this is working out. I, I like this new uh, enhanced. It's working out pretty great. This is enhanced presentation. podcasting, my friend. Okay, round of thirty-two. Nicholas Kiefer, a four-setter. Kiefer put him on the ropes a little that match. Six-two, six-seven, six-one, seven-five. Anytime there's a seven in any of these matches against Federer, I'm immediately going to earmark it because that means that these guys are throwing the kitchen sink at him, right? Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think, and I'm probably cutting you off here, but this is, I think, exactly if you're Federer, this is what the doctor ordered. Because if you breeze through those first two matches, which he did, you don't want to get to the second week really not having been tested. You want to sweat a little bit. And losing, I mean, maybe you don't want to lose a set, but you get to a tie break, you gut it out in a fourth set, 7-5. That is, you, you feel really good going into the second week with that under the belt. It gives you that that time to exhale. Like, okay, my, my feet have been to the fire a little bit. I don't think Federer was ever in you know, fear of losing that match to Kiefer, but it gives you that, that sweat. Absolutely. Super important, and we'll come back to it. I guarantee you uh, that, that notion of playing a, a match as opposed to like hitting practice. Exactly. Kiefer was ranked number four in the world in 2000, and he reached the second week in all the Grand Slams. Uh, he went 3-12 and 12 against Roger for his career. Round of 16, my boy, Juan Carlos Ferreira, 6-3, Talk about a ho-hum, Brian, almost giving him the third set tiebreak so he could get the reps, to your point. He didn't want to go. No, he's, he's not giving it to him, but it's, <laughs> but yeah, if you saw the score, you might think that, but no, he's not doing that. Ferrero had, had managed to sink his teeth and get a little bit closer, but we, we say this whole hump thing and it's just such a credit to, you know, just the machine that Federer was in this tournament where he's just chomping through. This is a former world number one in Juan Carlos Ferrero. And he just chews him up and spits him out and moves on to the uh, quarterfinals. He plays better, to your point, against the higher-ranked players at this stage in his career, and that's what's utterly fascinating about it. Like Hewitt and Roddick, they look like JV playing varsity, right? That's, that's what you keep seeing over and over again. In the quarterfinal now, Fernando Gonzalez. 7-5, But again, two sets with sevens in them. So you bet. We're going to chomp into this guy. Immediately should signal to any casual fan, Brian, that this guy was a force of nature to be reckoned with. Reached five in the world in 2007, one in 12 against Federer, three and seven against Nadal, six and three against Safin, three and six against Nalbandian, five and two against Hewitt. He's also beaten all the greats at various stages of their career, arguably in their primes. Nadal, Djokovic. This guy's dotted the map of tennis, right? Also made it to the second week of all Grand Slams. We'll see him again in a final against Roger Federer down the road. We're going to save that, a full deep dive on him for that. But he had one of the hardest forehands on the tour. And in Spanish, I don't know if you knew this or not, but he was called, do you know what he was called, his nickname? I do not. El Bombardero. Wow. Okay. The bomber. I want to share some clips with you. This is the uh, Fernando Gonzalez appreciation corner, if you will, because I have to move away from, uh, reluctantly move away from David Nalbandian. I am choosing this guy to be the apple of my eye, playing Robin to Roger Federer's Batman, if you will. 
Now, I want you to watch this incredible exchange between them and just break it down for me or comment on it. Federer is serving. No way. Yeah, so that's... First of all, it makes you appreciate uh, HDTV. Well, <laughs> um, look at this scoop shot. Look at that. that what is that? That scoop shot, well, it hits the net cord. Then once it hits the net, Gonzalez knows he's in no man's land and uh, whatever's going to happen next probably won't be good. But that's just one of those, those fun uh, scramble points. And those points are more fun when guys with this kind of weaponry are the ones involved because it creates some... Again, it's that whole going for broke thing where... Yeah, if it feels like this point is just a free-for-all now, so why not just let it rip and it becomes a little bit more fun. Going for broke and piggybacking off that theme, rounding out the Francisco Gonzalez Appreciation Day on the pod, here's a couple other highlights of his relentless forehand. Watch and comment. First one is Gonzalez smashing forehands on Nadal in the Australian Open one thing of note here is that Nadal is returning every single one of these things. So it's amazing stuff happening on both sides of the net. Look at that face. Nadal's on the bottom. Yeah. Sleeveless Nadal day is easy to tell. Yeah, that's incredible. So, so with that one, what was great was, you know, as much as Gonzalez had a very pronounced forehand motion, but he's essentially just playing rally balls, like just extending the point. And then once he turns it up for Nadal to even get that back and make him hit the overhead was remarkable because the forehand that should have won the point. Nobody gets that back. So Nadal, we talked before about the real estate around the court. You see how deep Nadal is. Just try. I mean, you have to do that against that kind of firepower to try to hang in the point. And he did well just to hang in for as long as he did. But that kind of weapon, you're not going to last too long against. Final video of Fernando Gonzalez. This is an exchange between him and Federer in 2007. And it's just ridiculous. 15 long. Yeah, that's like point of the year stuff from both guys. And you see right there how Federer has every single club in the bag. I mean, he can do everything Gonzalez gave to him in that rally. I mean, Gonzalez wins the point, but Federer was able to at least get there and put himself in position to stay alive. Um, yeah, that, that, that was a fun uh, memory lane trip. Yeah, it's nice. I forgot about Gonzalez. And this is part of the what is endearing me to this project is like we overlook a lot of these matches. You forget it. You recognize Roger's greatness, but there was a lot of great players, great moments. And one of the things I love about tennis, Brian, is the game within the game. 
You know, you see the match and you get the numbers and you just move on to the next round. But there are critical, crucial points, break chance moments, or the point right before a break point, the intensity of that, and then the the extending of those rallies and then what it does to the player who loses the point after a point like that. That's what's so great about this. And I forgot, I forgot about Fernando Gonzalez. I fully admit it. And I, that's why I kind of owed it to myself and I owed it to this project to give him his due here, which we're going to come back to because they do play a final in uh, it's the Australian open Australia 2007. And there's something to that too with you talk about the, the individuality and just what what's so great about tennis we'll talk about what that meant to chilean tennis because fernando gonzalez from chile and that's unique in and of itself we'll get to that down the road but also with what you just talked about the the beauty of tennis it's similar to baseball in a way where there's no clock to run out you've got to win more points than the other person so even if you're we federer had a match point in that australian open semifinal um, against Marat Safin. Maybe if you have a late lead, you hold the ball and you try to go to the foul line and ice it there. You can't do that in tennis. Mm-hmm. So you've got to go out and win the last point. And that is one thing that makes, I think, the sport so great. Semi-final. Leighton Hewitt. Piece of cake, Brian. 6-3, 6-4, Pull quote from The Guardian after the match. Hewitt like all other players, knows full well that Federer is the best player in the world by a country mile, and the respect is enormous. I don't have anything else on the semifinal. Did you have any revelations or insights on Hewitt? I kind of feel like it goes to your ho-hum theme here. It's just just too easy. Yeah, eight uh, eight straight. I mean, that's all you need to know. Eight straight. Great quote from Hewitt. I have no doubt I'm the second best player in the world right now. Now, I think you, you actually might be able to quibble with that because there were some other contenders. Maybe you throw Roddick in there. Um, but just to realize that, and we've heard similar from from Roddick before, um, and we would in the future as well, just they know where they are right now. They're, they're on the wrong side of history at this time. Federer in that semifinal hit 46 winners and he faced one break point. I mean, that is... That's a clinic, and it's in a Wimbledon semifinal against a former world number one. That's otherworldly stuff, and that's all you can do. Final. The rematch. Roddick. 6-2, 7-6, 6-4. Another clinic. So, Roddick comes in at a disadvantage here because he we this happened in the year prior. He had to play his finish his semifinal on Saturday. Um, do, if he finishes the semifinal on Friday, does he win this match? I don't think so. But you need every advantage you can get going against this prime Federer, and that's one that doesn't help Andy Roddick on, on that Sunday. And it's we talked about this last time, too. It's not just the playing. It's all that goes into it, just the expanding the, the energy, the adrenaline, the exhaustion level. It's just that much harder to recover in that short of a period of time. That kind of uh, answers my question to you, but let's just attribute a percentage of his performance to that. Um, the difference between this final and the last one last year was this, the speed. This match finished faster than the women's final, which we'll talk about in a few minutes here. What was different about this match than last year? What did Roger figure out or what did Andy not do to make this so lopsided? 
Again, understanding that the rest is one of the components. Roddick in, in this one, watching it back, he really stuck to the, we talked about the old way of playing grass court tennis, serve and volley. He was coming into net a lot. Um, but Roddick, that's not a strength of his game. He, he was a baseline player he, to show off his talents. Uh, on grass, you, can, you don't need to play as many shots, so he'd be able to get away with it. But once Federer is able to adjust and just kind of lock in some of those passes, the Roddick net, approach is not good enough to survive a, an informed Federer. So once Federer is able to adjust, he's just that much better, especially in this form. So it's Roddick trying to do things. He has to try to do things because what he was doing in the past, obviously he learned the hard way. Okay. I here I'm trying my best, but he has all the answers. I can't do anything now. Um, so yeah, he had to try something, but Federer is able just to to figure that out, pick that apart, and roll through a Wimbledon final. I've got two clips for you, Brian. Watch and react. Okay. Can you see it? Yep. This is early in the match. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. So you can talk over it. Can you play that back, actually? Because you see Roddick. Yeah, he hits that inside-out forehand, and it was a good one. And then Federer is able to just sting that return because Roddick didn't open the angle up enough. Now, Roddick there hits a fine shot. Play it one more time, please. Yeah, so it's Roddick off serve. He pulls Federer off the court, and then he hits a great inside-out forehand, and Federer just, it looks like he blocks the backhand, and he does, but he blocks it on a line right down the sideline. There's just nothing Roddick, there's nothing nobody on earth would be able to do about that because Roddick hit... Just a beautiful inside-out forehand. That's a strength of his. But Federer had the anticipation. He had the quickness, the racket control, and he's able to just knock it stiff for a, a clean winner off a block backhand. You see this uh, this visual of Andy right here? Yeah. In this final, there were at least a half dozen moments where he was an inch short and a moment late, and he is in this exact same slumped-over position. Here's the second video. I'm going to do it. We're getting more multimedia as we go through, yeah. Brian. I'm going to do the first one with sound, and then I'll play it again without sound. You can just talk right over it. Okay, this is now in the third set, and Federer's up two love. So, yeah, it's, yes, he's it's three, steaming three towards the finish. In the third set, it, this is the caption that I have here. It's an incredible running forehand winner. So look for that. And I think this is on Roddick's serve. Yes. Molto migliorato da fondo Roddick in questo terzo set. Lob. No. Però non è migliorato nella volée. So that's just What's remarkable there is how Federer gets away with a complete shank at the midway point of that rally yes. and is able to just keep it in the court. Um and Roddick wasn't because of off a it's interesting off a shank you might think oh wow this guy's dead but the, it throws off the other players timing and anticipation as well and Good it point. takes them out of their rhythm so Roddick isn't able to, he's got to wait for that ball to come down. He can't really do anything with it. And then Federer is just able to dig in, play defense. He sees that sliver of an opening. He's on the run and he's up two sets to love. So he just crushes that forehand for another gorgeous winner. Look where Roddick is right here. Okay. He's literally right at the net. Now my argument, okay. If I'm coaching is 
stick a racket in front of the ball. Like, I don't, I, couldn't he have made contact with this? Like, watch, just watch it again. Or was it so fast and so blindingly dizzying that it just obviously went right past him? His racket was right there. Am I wrong? Um, he's leaning back towards, he's trying to get back to the middle of the court. So ah, he's, he's footing. moving away from the ball, not even just footing. I, I I think that he's as a righty, he's moving right. If he's a lefty, maybe he sticks the arm out and is able to just get a piece of it. But no, he, he's already shifting back towards the center of the court. Okay. This is fine. I love, I'm gonna, we're going to do yeah, more of these good. videos. This is I great. actually, there's a good one coming up involving Andy Roddick, a little multimedia, uh, presentation. Uh, okay. That's the final. I'm going to get to context in a minute. But I want to mention Murray, Andy Murray, and I want to mention Novak Djokovic. They played in this tournament, Brian. They both lost in the third round. Murray lost to, wait for it, Nalbandian. Nalbandian came back, Brian, down two sets. A Hall of Fame plus factor for Vic. Uh, well, no, I'm going to disagree with that, but yeah, this is the uh, big introduction for Andy, Andy Murray to the British public. Also a big introduction for Andy Murray to really playing best of five set tennis, because if you're a guy like that, who's not used to playing best of five, you, you win two sets, you're usually shaking hands and walking off the court as the winner, but you're up against a, a grizzled top 10 guy in David Nalbandi and, uh, two sets to love. No, no, no. We're just getting started. So it was a couple of years ago at the U S open with, uh, Nick Kyrgios, and I think it was Tommy Robredo. And this was young Kyrgios. He's pulling out all the stops, wowing the crowd. And then Robredo, it was like watching somebody reel in a fish. Just uh, took him apart down the stretch. Um, and you could tell who had been on tour for a decade plus at that point and who had Veteran not. Veteran moves, absolutely. It was just fascinating just to look at the numbers. I didn't actually watch this match, but uh, Nalbandian's down two sets to love. And then the third set, he wins at 6-0. You know, like what, what happened in that third set? You know, it, it's, it just always makes you wonder. Sometimes I think part of it is what you said uh, an episode or two back where when you're new and you're in the big, big city lights, right? The bright lights, you recognize that the crowd might be filling in even more or whatever the case may be before you know it, you're down three games. Yeah. How am I up two sets to love against the top ranked player right now? Exactly. Uh, Djokovic lost to Sebastian Grosjean in four sets. The only note I have here, Brian, is that this tournament made Djokovic a top 100 player, and he's obviously never left since. Yeah, and he's a, uh, you know, we talked about Nadal as that shark that was circling for a while, and now he's, he's arrived. I think Djokovic has now become the shark, uh, and we're, he's in the top 100. He's 18 years old. And we're just going to be seeing more. And I guess, yeah, he's still 18 at this point. Uh, we're just going to be seeing more and more from him as he gets closer and closer to Federer and Nadal. Were the tennis cognoscenti predicting such great things for Novak and Andy at this point coming into Wimbledon? Or were they an afterthought? Uh, Murray had the hype of being a British star or a star in the making. So, yeah, there was a lot predicted of him. Uh, not so much with Djokovic. Um, yeah, he was thought to be a, well, take that back. I mean, yeah, he was considered to be uh, somebody with a bright future, but to be maybe the best player of all time, I don't think people were going quite that far yet. The Federer, overarching Federer theme was, this. it was too ripe. It was too fresh in everybody's yeah. mind. And even, even with, I mean, point. by the time we got to that point with Djokovic, I mean, he had already won probably three grand slams before we really start, you know, once he had that 2011 season, one of the best seasons ever he had had, you know, he had won 
the Australian Open a couple of times, but he hadn't had the the big success across the tour outside of Australia at the major level outside of Australia. Um, so it was a it was a little bit different for for Novak as well. Uh, so yeah, that just speaks to that time to as you said to ripen, and it takes everybody their own their own schedule. Okay, context, Brian. Where are we at now? Federer's third straight Wimbledon, a three-peat. The New York Times headline that I mentioned to you a moment ago was Federer, yawn, wins at Wimbledon again. Uh, Some of the greats of the game afterward echoed this sentiment. He reminds me of Pete Sampras with a better backhand. Brian, are we bored with Federer at this point? even after losing the Australian Open and the French Open in such dramatic fashion? No, because of the way he plays his tennis. There are other players in history that if they had produced this kind of success, um, this kind of dominance, yeah, we would have shut off the TV if they had played their way. But by the way, Federer plays. um, No, you, you were never going to turn it off. Maybe the result didn't really ever feel like it was in doubt. But... No, I, I, we're bored with the maybe the, the same guy winning all the time, but the way he's doing it is remarkable. So we're certainly still watching. Um, he also delivered, you know, I like to joke about some of his more less modest uh, sounding quotes, but um, <laughs> he said this. I'm actually not sure if he said this after the semifinal or the final. I mean, they were the, essentially the same style of match. I think it was after the final. He said, yeah, it's hard for him because I really played a fantastic match, one of the best of my life. And he essentially talked about how he couldn't believe that he played so well. Uh, something else he had done here that's remarkable. Um, this is where we talk about the historic perspectives. He's now 5-0 and in major finals at this point because of the two uh, slams he had lost uh, this year were in semifinals. And he has now won 21 consecutive finals. That's a, at all levels of tennis. So that goes to show that the big match moments, that once he gets to the final, he's not going to lose at this point. That is a, an incredible run. I like what you said about no, because of the way he plays. Yeah, no, it's it's true. If you had to watch the Detroit Pistons year in and year out in the finals, you would turn off the TV. Exactly. But if you get to watch someone like MJ, you get to watch something like Kobe and Shaq, uh, it was a beautiful style of basketball. Uh, San Antonio Spurs, some would say, is a beautiful style of basketball. So you're absolutely right. Um, even baseball. Yeah. So here's a number to just illustrate the Federer dominance. After this final, Andy Roddick on grass since 2003 his record fell to 32-3. and three. All three of those losses were to Federer at Wimbledon. He had won against everybody else. Andy Roddick had won 32 consecutive grass court matches. And he's an all-time great. He probably would have won more titles if Roger Federer was not around at the same time. But to be able to just own an all-time great like that on that particular surface, which Federer is able to do, just speaks to how dominant he was. You brought up a great point, and I want to just ask this. If you are facing him, okay, if you're Roddick, pretend you're his team, pretend you're in his camp, pretend you're in his box right now. Same for Hewitt. You've played this guy over and over again on the grass the last three, four years. Federer knows, to your point, what you just said. He knows your game, okay? So this is me, just the lay fan talking here, but my strategy would be we have to show him something he hasn't seen. Okay, what is your game plan for Roger going in? 
Well, that's what we saw Roddick do in this Wimbledon final where he was coming into net more. He was just approaching, trying to play more of a net game. Uh, but Federer is able to adjust to that and was able to pick him apart. Um, so you, you try to come up with some different wrinkles. But at the end of the day, you know, these guys are the top one tenth of one percent of the world's athletes and tennis players. There's only so much you, you can't throw out the playbook. You have to go with what your you've game got is there your with. game. Your game is your game. Exactly. Um, so you've got to hope that, hey, my guy has a good day. Maybe he doesn't have his best day and we'll see what happens when they go out and, and the ball gets tossed up in the air. And that's all you can really do at that point. Let's talk about the women's side for a minute for continuity. Last week was Maria Sharapova's Wimbledon. She did not defend her title this year. Venus defeated Lindsay Davenport in the longest ever women's Wimbledon final, I believe, two Maybe hours and 45 one of the best. If you have a thought there, love to hear it. Also, one other little trivia note I found was that Serena smashed her racket in this Wimbledon and she destroyed it. Like it was disfigured, you know, six ways from Saturday, but it recently went to auction. That racket went to auction and it fetched $8,000. So wow. just a little bit of fun past coming into the present, if you will. I want to shout out um, my buddy, Jill Krabis, a friend of mine who I work with who beat Serena in this tournament and I think might have been responsible for the smashed racket. Uh, but yeah, Jill beat Serena, tells great stories about it, and then uh, met Venus in the round of 16 and that didn't uh, go as well for her. But um, yeah, Venus Williams beats Lindsay Davenport, one of the great Wimbledon women's finals of all time, and actually becomes even, she wins 9-7 in the third set this is after she had to win a second set tie break just to extend it into a third. So one of the great Wimbledon finals, men or women ever. And it's gotten even better in history because we later learned um, the day before the final, Venus was meeting. There was an All England Club meeting and Venus was in that meeting taking an active role, speaking up uh, for equal pay, the equal prize money for women. Um, and just to do that on the eve of the Wimbledon final when you could – really be selfish and just think like, uh, you know, I, I'm still going to get a, a healthy amount of money here, but I'm going to focus on winning this. But to, to really speak up for the greater good is remarkable. And equal prize money was introduced at Wimbledon two years later. So that, you know, when you say 2005 Wimbledon in the context of women's tennis, it's really one of those, um, you know, history making tournaments and events just because of all that was going on, not only on the court, but off it as well. Are all the Grand Slams equal pay now? Yes, all four are equal prize money, men and women. I think that's pretty much everything I got. You want to preview next week for us? Yeah, so we will continue uh, looking at Roger Federer's history-making 2005 and what he did after Wimbledon. Different this year, he did not go to Gestad in 2005, as he had done in years past, but he uh, kept on winning, saw Roddick again, and then he sees Andre Agassi in the U.S. Open final. That'll be a fun one. This is a one-off, only time they ever met a major final. It was Agassi's last major final, and it was a pretty good final. Interesting, um, but Federer came out on top. Uh, no spoilers there, so we will be able to uh, relive that one for everybody. Awesome. We'll make next time our uh, Andre Agassi appreciation pod then, too. Yes. So we'll, we'll dive into him. I'm going to crack open, open again, and pull out some pull quotes from that. And we'll find some video clips. We've got a whole multimedia podcast machine going here, Brian. Uh, it's been great. a pleasure as always. Stay well. I will talk to you next week. 
Thanks, Vic. You too. 